three this morning. I want to uh, give you a little bit of a preview for where we're going um, the next couple weeks with the Word. I have uh, decided uh, to move to a tough passage in Titus uh, next week, and that is the, the passage on confrontation in the church, confrontation and restoration. We'll be talking about that. That's to finish us off in Titus 3. We'll also um, pick back up to some themes that I sort of moved past in 1 Timothy 5, talking all about uh, how to restore brothers and sisters in the church. And so we'll talk about that and we'll finish the pastoral epistles off um, next week. And it's been, you know, July to now that we've been in the pastorals. We could have taken a long time, and I expected I was just going to do a summer series, but here we are um, pressing into October. And then on October the 13th, when we're all together in one service, we'll begin a series through the book of the one chapter of Philemon. And I'm very excited to go there. Uh, I know there's a lot of riches and things dealing with um, conflict and restoration and forgiveness. Uh, sort of what we'll hit on next week at the end of Titus, will, it will spin us into Philemon. And I'm excited about that. There's things dealing with social status and love for people and equality and reconciliation. And the gospel is in Philemon. Philemon, I, there's one verse in Philemon I've meditated on as a small preview, and that is where Paul is exhorting Philemon to forgive Onesimus, the slave who's um, fled him. And he says, listen, if you've accrued um, any debt against his leaving, just charge it to my account. And that's the gospel. That's what Jesus did for us. It's a symbol of that. That's the heart of saying, listen, I will take the burden upon myself. What Jesus did for you and me, he took our sin debt upon himself and forgave us freely and declared us his sons and daughters. And so that's a little preview of Philemon to come. So you might be reading there. And now this morning, we're going to read from Titus chapter 3. This, uh, my friends, is one of my favorite gospel texts in the Bible. Um, I told first hour I might hold back a little bit so I can go all the way second hour, and I was pretty lively first hour, so I don't know, you know, what's, what's left or what's going to happen, but I love this gospel text. Um, Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to perfect courtesy, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the kindness Sorry, that was the New American Standard. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable. 
for people. I'd memorized this text uh, in the New American Standard, so some words pop out a little bit differently than the English Standard Version, but I still love this literal text, and it is a text that is literally the gospel. I was uh, one time uh, in a men's group, and it was about 40 or 50 men sitting around, and, and we needed an icebreaker, and so a pastor stood up, and he went around the room, and he asked the men this question. He said, uh, what is, you know, tell, tell us your name, tell us what, where you work, and tell us the hardest thing about your job or the thing that you least like about where you work. And so people were one by one saying, hi, my name's such and such, and this is where I work. And, and then the thing that everybody liked the least or disliked the most about where they work came out over and over again. And I guess it's funny, it's a little bit awkward funny, but it was one after the other, everybody was saying, you know, I, I, I work this job, I'm, you know, I work at the airport, I work this job, I'm an, I'm an engineer, I, I do this. But yeah, the thing I dislike most about my job is the, the people that I work with, um, the people around me, you know, awkward, right? You know, it, it, this could be awkward for us to go into themes like this, right? I mean, you could have fellow employees or people that work for you or under you even here, right? And so... But that theme spread out throughout the whole time around all of us. We're saying, you know, we have to work with people, and that's really, really hard. Why is that? It's because we're all sinners. Some of, some of us are the employer, and some of us are the employees, and some of us work with colleagues. And guess what? When you find yourself in a job that you're staying at, you're committing to stay and work with and try to get along with people who are fellow sinners, right? You're a sinner working with a sinner. It's like being married. What's the toughest thing to pull off in marriage? Well, it's staying with another sinner. Hey, we got to cohabitate as sinners. I'm a husband sinner with a wife sinner who's a wife sinner married to a husband sinner who a lot of times are parents of little sinners. And guess what? In our household, we are outnumbered big time by the sinners. But guess what? We're parent sinners parenting six baby sinners. And so you have a sin fest. And, and, and that's how it is on the job as well. Today, according to verses 1 and 2, I mean, as we talk about this through a gospel lens, it might not be the, you know, bring your boss to church Sunday morning, you know, day, but I'm just kind of going there. I mean, it's hard. Uh, the Bible in this text assumes that it's hard to work under sinners. A lot of, some of us have the privilege of working with believing sinners who are our boss, but a lot of us have the opportunity, the, the missionary work of working under people who are not saved, and they are unsaved bosses that we have to submit to as believers. And the Bible here assumes that's hard, and the gospel paragraph that's underneath the commands of verses 1 and 2, that is making the strong assumption that we need all of the gospel content on our side for us to submit in work environments. We need the whole gospel preached to us to, be, to, to live like Jesus in the world. This is a call to preach the gospel to yourself every day, because we need it to be submissive. And this, my friends, verses 1 and 2, this is evangelism. This is what it looks like to win people to Jesus. It's living 
day-to-day, on the job, eight, nine, ten hours a day, working under people, working alongside people, having people under you, and it's being like Jesus with a worshipful heart and a good attitude on the job. That's the mission field. You say, man, you know, I've never, I haven't been on a mission trip in a long time. I feel bad about that. I haven't shared Jesus with somebody on the street in a long time. I feel bad about that. Where's my ministry? Where's my mission field? When's it going to happen? Well, it happens on Monday morning if you're working or today, this evening. I and mean, whenever you're working, you're on the mission field. You are salt and light and Jesus puts you there in that situation. In your marriage with an unsaved spouse, you're put there with that person for a purpose to evangelize that person. That's, that's the gospel life that we're talking about. That's living the Christian life. Look at verses one and two. This is Paul. He's talking to Titus. He's talking to Titus who's on the island of Crete, left on the island of Crete with some sinners, right? Remember um, the passage in chapter one, verse 12. One of the Cretans, one of their own, a prophet of their own, a writer, you know, like the newspaper columnist, he said this, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Welcome to the mission field. That's what Paul's saying to Titus. Look, this is, this is your demographic. This is your group. You're on this island in the Mediterranean, and you're called to work a job in humility, coming underneath these kinds of governing authorities, these kinds of leaders on the job. First one, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. All right, yeah, stop there. That, that's broader than just being a good citizen. This is not just talking about being submissive to the police and the fire department when you have to pull over or, or being a good citizen voter. No, it's not talking about, it, it is that, but it's so much more. This is the breadth of living the Christian life to anybody who's in authority over you. That's what you're to be reminded of. And submissive is the word hupatasso, we talked about a lot, which means to rank yourself under in action and attitude. Saying, look, I, you know, I know I'm an heir of Christ. I'm a co-equal heir with Christ. I'm going to heaven. I'm saved. But guess what? Functionally, socially, in society, I'm under that person. That person who's a sinner, who, who affected my life, who, who gave me a bad week, who did me wrong, right? That person that, that affects how I feel about my day-to-day, I'm ranked under. That's what this says, to be ranked underneath, willingly. This is in action and in attitude. So we're gonna be looking at three confessions that are motivations to live like Jesus in the world. That's the outline header, but this first point is a context point. It's that evangelism happens through actions and attitudes by coming under people, coming under people. Look at the next phrase here, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Now we're talking not just um, you're a do-gooder, Um, This is not the idea of saying, look, you know, you got to kind of summon your inner Fred Rogers and and sort of be Mr. Nice Guy at work. That's uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, if you don't know who that is. It's not talking about that. It's talking about having in your heart a humility before the Lord where you tell yourself, listen, I need to live for Christ on the mission field, and I'm going to do it by actions and attitudes, by being ready for every good deed. Every good deed. Do you see where the bar is on this? Every good deed, and it's this sort of anticipatory attitude. We go, okay, um, I I could you know come in at fifty percent in terms of my thrust for this objective, but I'm gonna come in at a hundred. 
I'm going to not only submit to people I don't like, but I'm going to do it with a cheerful, worshipful heart, and I'm going to jump on things as needs arise. That's what, that's what the gospel standard is. That's when it becomes evangelism. That's when it becomes missionary work. Ready for every good deed. It takes the whole gospel to get me there. I, I'm, I'm sure it does you as well. This is tough work. It's an extreme standard where you're ready to jump on needs as they arise. And that only comes from having a soft heart. Here, look further. To speak evil of no one. Whoops, time out. We're talking about the chatter, about the boss in the back room. It's where you don't participate in that as a believer. You say, ah, I can't do that. Uh, this person, he did us wrong. He, you know, he, he's made me work extra hours. He's not, not paying for. It's this, it's that. And you just repent your heart of, of that temptation and you don't participate in that kind of chatter. That's the standard. That's when this becomes evangelistic. And your employer knows your attitude. I mean, it's on display. They, they see it in your work ethic. And basically, you're either known as a person who's submissive and an overachiever. That's what this is calling for. Submission, overachievement. Or you're someone who's quarreling in the background, complaining, talking down your boss. And this biblical text says you can't do it. You got to be humble and an overachiever, not quarreling. And then look at this, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Perfect courtesy is a synonym for being gentle. Basically, the fruit of spirit is being loving, joyful, and gentle. You're just a gentle person. You're, you're, you don't have your dukes put up. You're, you're just kind of doing your job. You're humble. You're, you're doing it for Jesus. And you, you love people that are really, really hard to work with, hard to work for. This is difficult work. If you just read this passage, these verses superficially, without putting a context on it, without putting a real-life application on it, you can sort of let yourself out of this standard. But the standard is clear. It's hard to work with sinners. And this kind of hard work is what brings glory to God and people come into the kingdom because you're a godly witness and testimony on the job. But how do you get there? I love how Paul loads this text, this paragraph with gospel backing. This is one of the most sort of chunky, meatiest, strong, explicit gospel paragraphs in all of the Bible. And it's what we need as a full course meal in our hearts if we're gonna be humble, submissive, soft-hearted workers in the world or in the home, wherever your mission field is that God has you to be. You get this gospel in your hearts by preaching it to yourself, by saying it to yourself, by creating the internal narrative in your mind as three salvation confessions. Here's confession, number one, it's verse three. This is where you are admitting your past sinful condition a.k.a. remembering how bad you used to be before you were saved. It's number one. Here's a theological version of remembering who you used to be before you met Jesus. Verse three. For we ourselves, Paul included, right? 
He's not letting himself out of it. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Let's stop there. There's seven descriptors we're going to work through here. Paul includes himself. He recognizes that he was in the same boat before he was converted. And Titus is that as well. We ourselves were once, first descriptor, foolish. We were spiritually blind. Before you were saved, you were a corpse spiritually. You were lifeless, empty. You were without God. You might have seen God and sensed God through creation, through general revelation, through being made in the image of God. But in terms of personal relationship with the Lord, it was empty before being saved. Bible says in Proverbs, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Before you're a Christian, you're a fool. You're an unbeliever. You're spiritually blind. You're what Jesus condemned the Pharisees of. You're the blind leading the blind. We're self-destructive. We're under the world's poisonous theories and schemes, and we're living for self, and we're buying into what's called secular humanism where you're trying to achieve some kind of righteousness or hedonistic pleasure in this life to satisfy an empty soul that only God can fill. We're foolish. Second, disobedient. We stray. We, we see rules and run from them. There is a whole version, if you remember, before you were saved, where you rationalize away righteousness, where you live as a person filled with lawlessness, licentiousness. You have license. You have the past. I don't have to do that. I don't have to do this. I can fudge on this. I don't have to make good on that. I don't have to seek forgiveness here. I can run from that. I can participate in this. I don't have to play by those archaic Bible rules. mean nothing to me. Disobedient. Look at this one. Led astray. Led astray. What is that? That's the word um, where we get the word planet. It's the Greek word uh, planomenoi. It's the idea that we were spinning around out of control. I remember this before being a Christian. I was led astray and connect this to the next one. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Basically, if you'll remember what you were when you were unsaved, even though you thought you were in control of your life, in retrospect, you go, you know what? What was really dominating me was my own idolatrous heart that wanted to live for a variety or a diversity of passions and pleasures. And I was spinning out of control like a spinning planet that's sort of just wandering around. And, you know, I, I don't know what my life was about. That's what it's like to be drunk on the world living for the cotton candy of the world that you just eat and eat for the pleasure of the bite, but it's giving you no nutrition, anti-nutrition, and it's against you. That's what it means to be foolish and out of it. Look at this phrase, passing our days in malice and envy. The fifth descriptor, we were foolish, we were disobedient, led astray, um, slaves to various passions and pleasures, and then passing our days in malice. It, it means it's like being on a country road where you're watching fence posts pass by you as you drive along, and 
your days are like fence posts where they're just being spun one after the other after the other. Another day gone, another day wasted, another day given to self instead of to Christ, another day of dissatisfaction, passing your days in malice. Malice means to um, hate people or be malicious. It's like this idea of just you're malicious, you're out to get people, you're mad at people all the time, and your days are just going by one after the other. And then hated or envy, envy, verse 6. It's just idolatry. I remember when I became a Christian, that was a, a true difference maker from who I was to who I became. I used to always want what everybody had because I always thought the other person was better off than me, more happy, and had what I needed to be happy. So I was sort of in this rat race to get more and more and more. And then, you know, I saw one of the key evangelists to me was my older brother, and I saw joy in his life where he became a Christian at 16, and he had something that I couldn't envy anymore. I just was convicted by it and stunned, and I wanted the joy that he had, and that's when I became a Christian. But before that, you're envious for the world and hated by others and hating one another. You're hated and you're hateful. Do you remember those days? Hate instead of love. The opposite of love is hate. God is love and, and our hearts are filled with anger, malice, envy, and hate, and idolatry, and dissatisfaction before we know Christ who can only satisfy. I was uh, back east a couple years ago with my kids and with my parents and uh, we put in a, a VHS tape into our VCR. A VHS tape is a plastic little box with some reel-to-reel that, you know, displays a video. And we were watching this and uh, I was 15 at the time with, you know, bleach blonde hair and just a goofball. And, and I was being sarcastic and kind of disrespectful to my father on the screen I was just watching that and I lasted about 30 seconds and just said cut that off I can't even go there I can't even watch it that was who I was I was this person I saw it in my eyes I didn't have love for Jesus the lights had not been turned on and I didn't want to watch it but we're supposed to for gospel motivation, these confessions are motivations, okay? We're supposed to go there and remember who we once were. And you can do that with these descriptors and go, yeah, that's who I was. Even if you got saved as a child, you can recount the fact in retrospect, this is who I would have been. This, is, this was in my spiritual DNA. When I see those attitudes come out or that foolishness come out now and it's a temptation to me, that's what I was dominated by before I was converted, even if you were converted at six years old. It was there. It's the doctrine of total depravity. It's that you are tainted by sin, being born in sin in all of these categories and all of these varieties it's just like a child who falls in the mud they're not as muddy as they possibly could be in all categories and areas but they're completely muddy (laughs) and as a sinner all areas are tainted by sin we're not all going to be Charles Manson we're all going to be something horrible but we all have those potentialities before Christ within our hearts within our spiritual DNA and this is what we've been delivered from okay what's the point I give you the point. Point is this: Go back to verses one and two. You got to be submissive. You got to be obedient. You got to work with um, some rough people. Evangelism's hard on the job, right? How do you how do you get there? How do you become that submissive, soft-hearted, worshiping Christ-like person on the job? Simple. 
Remember that that person who's a sinner over you is who you were before you met Jesus Christ. So you're no better than they are. They're just still under sin's curse. They're still under Satan's spell. And you have compassion for them. You pray for them. You love them. You honor them. You don't think you're better than them. And you want them even to spend the rest of eternity with you in heaven because you want Jesus to enter that person's life. That's why you remember how bad you once were. That's the first confession, second confession. Second confession comes in verse four. Second confession is acknowledging your present saved position. Acknowledging your present saved position. Okay, verse four, but contrasting verse three. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, verse five, he saved us. Stop there. Key words here. God the Father saved you. You didn't save yourself. God saved you. You had nothing to do with your salvation. I mean, we, there is faith. There is belief. God uses that instrumentally. But the picture is you're drowning, you're dying, you're going down, and God lifts you out and saves you. He saved you. Literally, he saved you. The one he saved you. This one, the Father of glory, saved you. Back up to verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. This phrase is a beautiful one because it marks two events at the same time. It's sort of a, a, a double idea here all at once. Two events. First event was when Jesus came on the scene 2,000 years ago. When God our Savior, don't miss the deity of Christ here, when God our Savior appeared. It's like, okay, you know, got the Old Testament, all the ceremonial sacrificial system. You've got Isaiah 53, Psalm 2, Psalm 22. You've got um, minor prophets talking about the one whom, who will be pierced through for our transgressions. I mean, foreshadows of Christ coming, and then the curtains are drawn back, and there he is, Jesus Christ on full display with full clarity. Jesus is here. Jesus appeared. Second meaning is this. It's when he appeared to you personally. And I don't mean in some sort of mystical vision. What I'm talking about here is illumination. It's where you're reading about Jesus and Jesus moves from being someone you're reading about to someone you love. That is Holy Spirit transformed illumination. Second Corinthians chapter four is where Paul described it this way. It's when the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is shown in the face of Jesus Christ. It's where you're reading about Jesus and through the eyes of faith, you're believing in and embracing Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. It happens here all the time. People come up to me, people declare it in the waters of baptism. I, you know, I was going to church and then boom, something hit me and Jesus became Lord of my life. That's this appearance. Now, there's sort of two ideas here. Go back to chapter 2, verse 11. Just focus up on your page here. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 10 is talking about God our Savior and the grace appearing. When did Christ appear? 2,000 years ago when he was born and died on the cross for our sins and rose again. And then... The context immediately in verse four is God our Savior appeared and then the time marker here is verse five. He saved us. In other words, 
when Christ transformed us, he appeared to us. Now, both these ideas are found in one little narrative passage I have to read to you quickly. It's John 1, verse 43 is where it picks up. It's when Jesus, historically, he showed up to Philip and to Nathaniel. Great story, okay? Philip and Nathaniel are chronicling that, hey, the Messiah has come, and they're exuding the fact that they've been saved by him. Look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we, listen to this, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I mean, in, those, in that phrase, you have both ideas happening, right? We found him. Uh, he, he believed. He saw that this is the true Messiah. There's love in that and excitement in that. And what Philip said to his good friend, Nathaniel, and then he's documenting that this is the one who's been foretold of by Moses and the prophets. He's here both in history, that first event, and in salvation in my heart. That's the idea. Back to Titus. Titus chapter 3 again. He saved us. This is, yeah, it's past tense language, but it's talking about the present position. What do you tell yourself? Wow, I was really bad before I was saved. That's verse 3. And, and then verses 4 and following, God was really good to me and saved me and that's my present position that's what Paul is doing here but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared he saved us that phrase about goodness and loving kindness that's who we are supposed to be on the job good people people filled with kindness people filled with love the love that's been given to us makes us different people on the job and then verse 5, he's describing salvation here, not because of works done in, by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Hey, guess what, friends? That's the gospel. That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. There's detail here. There's two religions in the world. There's Jesus, where you know him by grace. And then there's all the other religions, which are works righteousness. And Paul is clear to say a statement of deconstruction here. I want to deconstruct any idea that you think for yourself that you saved yourself or had any work that you added in the saving column for you to get saved. There's no ladder climbing in the gospel. There's rescue from a savior. We're sinners. We're going this way and God stopped, made a detour and turned us around this way and he saved us. The whole curse of Galatians is the idea that people even as Christians can fall prey to a bewitching spell of works righteousness where you begin to believe that you're saving yourself or keeping yourself or growing yourself by your own efforts instead of trusting in grace and responding with fruit from what God has done for you so it's not because of works that we've done, but according to his own mercy. Verse 5, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I've got to emphasize the Holy Spirit here. This is a very explicit passage. It's one of the most um, rich, picturesque metaphors of what happens in the heart by the Holy Spirit when you're saved. Guess what? You didn't save yourself. 
wasn't your work. It was God's work in your heart that saved you. That's when you became a new creature or new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away and everything has become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17. So what exactly is going on here? Um, there's, there's the Holy Spirit's intervening work in your life. Look at verse 6. We'll skip ahead for a second. Whom... The Holy Spirit's a he. He's the third member of the Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He is a person and a personality. He is God from all of eternity in the inner Trinitarian fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He whom, verse 6, poured out, God the Father poured out the third member of the Trinity into our lives, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So he's poured in, lavishly poured into our lives. What does this look like? Well, it looks like what happened in verse, at the end of verse five, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Two word pictures here with washing and renewal, okay? The doctrine of regeneration is where the Holy Spirit takes your old dead heart and enlivens it. It's like a light switch that's on off. It's suddenly flipped on. And you're like, oh, I love Jesus. I don't even know why I love Jesus. Wow, Jesus is real to me as I read about him. I'm like Philip and Nathaniel. I'm excited about Jesus. I love him more than anybody else because the lights came on. Well, the first metaphor here is there's a washing effect that takes place when you love Jesus. You as a believer are spiritually cleansed from all of your sins when you are saved. The dominion of sin is broken when you're saved. You're no longer under Satan and sin's rule. The idols of your heart are washed and knocked down when you become a Christian. Remember Jesus talked about this to Nicodemus in John 3. He said, you must be born again. Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you won't enter the kingdom of God. Um, Nicodemus, who basically was the highest known political and religious figure of the day in Israel, the teacher of the law, he just sort of blows off what Jesus says and begins to kind of debate and argue and says, hey, Jesus, how can a man be born a second time? How can he enter into a mother's womb? What are you talking about? And Jesus is saying, how can you be the teacher of the law and not make this connection? Exposing the fact that Nicodemus was still foolish, deceived, dead in his heart. Uh, an enlivened heart understands that when you are saved, you are spiritually cleansed. Do you remember when your guilt was washed away? It's not that you stopped sinning altogether. It's just the guilt of your sin was gone. The emptiness, the, the hopelessness of sin was answered by a washing effect. This was all prophesied of in Ezekiel chapter 36, what Jesus was referencing in John 3. Ezekiel said, I will sprinkle clean. He's quoting, he's speaking for God. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. There's a heart transplant that takes place when you're saved. Um, your, your old sin dominant idols are washed and the stony heart's taken out, and a soft, supple heart that can love God is put in. 
Old things pass away, everything becomes new. I always think of Ezekiel 36 in this way. It's like Israel is there and they've given over to idolatry and they built all these wooden and stone monuments to Baal and uh, things like that. And a tsunami storm comes and a tsunami wave comes in and washes all those idol monuments down. That's what happens in the heart when you get saved. That's what we're talking about. The washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And we've talked about that. That's where the Holy Spirit enlivens us to see and savor and love Jesus Christ. And it's all through him. Look at verse 6. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. Guess what? There's only one way to get to heaven. That's through Jesus. It's a repeated theme over and over again. I can't express that enough. I mean, there's so many other sort of almost Christian religions out there. There's all these almost the right religion. They mention Jesus. They talk about Jesus. He's a good guy, whether it's the secular humanism, Jesus, you know, the Gandhi do-gooding, Jesus, the philanthropic, Jesus, right? The Jesus that we celebrate at holidays, Jesus, the created being, Jesus. Those aren't Jesus. The real Jesus is the Savior and God who is Jesus, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, who was and is and is to come, the one who's same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the Lord. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the creator of all things. All things came from him and reflect worship back to him. That's Jesus, the Lord of the universe, the head of the church. That's the only entryway to God is through him, the Jesus revealed to us in Scripture, Jesus. That's, we, how do we submit on, on the job? You got to bring this back to shoe leather levels. How do you get a good attitude? You think about that Jesus who saved you. And you think about how bad you were and how good God was to reveal Jesus to you by the Holy Spirit where you can love him and go through him, John 10, the door into eternal life. So you, uh, you remember how bad you once were you admit your past sinful condition. You acknowledge your present salvation. And then um, finally, you accept your future, future eternal promise. What does that mean? Accepting your future eternal promise. I think a lot of us struggle with the security of salvation. And we think, you know, I hope I don't blow it. Like, oh, I'm doing this again. This sin habit is coming back up. So my eternal destiny is in jeopardy. It's easy to get there because we can easily shift into trying to cling to a false religion where we're trying to climb our way into heaven, even if we're already Christians. We've got to refuse that, accept the fact that it's God who saved us and who gives us a believing status where we're set and secure looking for eternity that's guaranteed for us. Look at this. It's found in verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay, again, some time marker language here. When you were saved, when he saved you, God the Father saved you through Christ, regenerating you by the Holy Spirit, you became justified. It all happened. At salvation in your heart. What is justification? It's where God the Father declares you righteous. It's one of the most beautiful pictures in all of Scripture. Standing guilty, 
It's like you're standing before the throne of God and you say, I got nothing but hopelessness. And God the Father looks at you and says, yes, you're guilty. But I'm gonna put your guilt on my son and punish him and put his righteous life and perfect life that he lived on you and declare you not guilty. You're pure, you're blameless. It's, it's the prodigal son who's come home and the father goes, I'm gonna put my robe of righteousness on you. You are declared forgiven for what you did. You squandered your inheritance. You squandered, you shamed me. You were brought low and now I'm gonna treat you like royalty anyway. That's the grace and mercy of the gospel. He saved you he justified you. That's what that, the word is righteousness. Dikaios, it's righteousness. He justified you. It's a legal declaration. It's God's judgment has already been made and you stand in grace. This is Romans 5. I have to show you the connection. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, it's the same connection. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch this. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace, I love this phrase, that's why I'm quoting it, in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Why can you have hope? Hope here, uh, whether Romans 5 or Titus or other, it's always in the New Testament sense, it's a guarantee. It's not wishful, it's not maybe, it's not I, I have a, a hope like you think in terms of hoping you know, the Washington Redskins will win a football game. I don't know. I mean, that's hope. But the biblical hope is secure. It's future. It's I'm an heir. I'm a co-equal heir with Christ. It's as if I'm already seated with Christ on the throne. It's, I'm adopted. I am in child-to-father status that will go unbroken. Nothing can take me from the Father's hand. I'm his, and he is mine. It's justification. It's a done deal. We are, our justification is just as sure as the fact that Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago. We were in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. It's done. Amen, hallelujah. We stand in grace and it gives us hope for eternity. It's the already not yet factor. It's like we're already there and we're not yet there, but we're already there, but we're not yet there, but we're gonna go there and it's already not yet hope now tying this together in verse 8 look at verse 8 I love what Paul does here he ties it all together he ties the commands of verses 1 and 2 with the confessions of verses 3 through 7 the commands and the confessions they all have to tie together this ties together with any command in scripture as a New Testament Christian any command in scripture has to be tied together with gospel confessions the motivations are the confessions. The confessions are the motivations. How bad you once were. How good God was to you. The future secure security of eternal future grace is before you. Those three confessions are what get you through. They're what make you an obedient, soft-hearted Christian. Verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. Paul saying, Titus, what I've just said, these three confessions, you can bet your soul on these things. You put all your eggs in this basket. Anywhere Paul said this is a trustworthy word or trustworthy statement in 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, all talking about gospel stuff. It's always a gospel confession. This is trustworthy. Then he broadens it to the commands. He says, I want you to insist. This is a preach this repetitively type comment. Titus, I want you to say 
these commands in light of these gospel confessions all the time to the churches. Why? Insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. If you want the churches, if you want the believers to be happy, to be vibrant, to be witnesses, to be alive, to be effective, to be empowered, then preach the commands, but preach them with the gospel confessions, with the motivations to get people to live the Christian life. Got to preach them both. If you just preach commands, that's law and legalism. You got to preach the grace behind the commands. That's how you can be like Jesus. That's how you can be. I love this. I mean, it's just, it's, it's almost like a, a life choking type level. And then you put the gospel with it. And it's okay. Um, again, verse one, to be ready for every good deed. Really? Really, God? Every good deed? Well, when you're motivated by grace, you can open your heart up to that kind of standard because now it's just, what else can I do but try to do my best by the grace of the gospel? I remember who I once was. I resonate with that. I'm not forgetting how sinful I was. And I remember how, God, how good God was to me. And I can work with anybody. I can work with any hard-hearted sinner because I'm no better than that person. That was me before God intervened. I can work with that person. Because God saved me out of that. I can pray for that person. I can serve that person. Ready for every good deed. I can, I can co-work. I can stay in that marriage. I can, I can parent that child because before I was saved, I was that child. I did that. I did that. That's who I was. And I'm still sinful. But God, you saved me by your grace. That's the gospel. It's, it's preaching it to yourself. It's the internal narrative that drives this kind of Christ-likeness and soft-heartedness. And I have a hope in my heart that I am an heir of, a co-equal heir with Christ. I'm, I'm an heir of the King. I have an inheritance waiting for me that's imperishable, undefiled, waiting for me in heaven. And I'm gonna be unshackled from and released from this hardship, this world that's filled with sin. I'm gonna be released into glory. And that, that motivates me to live the Christian life as a believer. Let's pray. Father, I pray, God, that we would put you on display.